Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. So this is Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a podcast where I talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they have a connection to. Today I'll be talking to J.M. Brandt, co-writer of the upcoming horror comic Swamp Dogs House of Crows, and that'll be coming out on the Black Caravan imprint. So uh, welcome, J.M. Brandt, and why don't you tell us a little bit about Swamp Dogs House of Crows? Okay, a little bit about it is um, the Swamp Dogs are the meanest, cruelest Confederate soldiers that ever existed. And uh, they are resurrected by a voodoo curse, or a voodoo hex, I should say, and in present-day Louisiana. And they come up against a young lesbian couple and a goofy metal band in what's basically like a horror movie. Um, like a grindhouse 70s, 80s horror movie. Very cool. And so when should we expect to see... Swamp Dogs at our comic book shops? Good question. Um, there is an Ashcan uh, preview comic. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Ashcan uh, format, it's like a little miniature-sized comic book with a handful of pages. And we have some exclusive pages in there. Um, but other pages just taken from the first issue. That comes out sometime in July. And uh, then October 2021 is when you will see issue one in the stores. Seems like they're trying to line that up with Halloween. They are. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really excited about the book. They're telling us that we're the headline book of the year. And if there was an in-person Comic Con, then we would be their guests of honor there. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, very humbling, uh, considering it's my first comic. I'm, you know, really, really stoked at the attention that it's getting. And also, f the pandemic for you not being able to go to Comic Con. <laughs> well, there's there's going to be other conventions, and uh, there are other years too. You know, I'm I'm not going away anytime soon, and um, the series. Like, this part of the series ends in May, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's five issues. And so I will be at next year's San Diego as long as Delta variants and other variants don't keep us from, you know, all being able to hug and kiss one another in San Diego. <laughs> uh, so fittingly, today we're going to cover our first horror soundtrack for the podcast. And we're talking about Dan O'Bannon's The Return of the Living Dead. So, J.M., why are we talking about The Return of the Living Dead? We are talking about Return of the Living Dead because when I was uh, thinking about music in horror and not thinking about scores, uh, you know, of which there's like a bunch of really good ones, um, the horror movie that I, I equate with music the most is Return of the Living Dead. Um, if you were to like give an elevator pitch for it, you would just say it's a punk rock zombie movie. And, um, you know, I, I have a history of being too into punk rock, <laughs> uh, especially growing up. And um, so it's it's just a great synergistic use of music in a horror movie. And I think it, it gives it a, a very unique vibe as far as horror movies go. Yeah, I agree. I was really surprised with how well the music works with the movie. Um, I'm not a horror aficionado, but yeah, you know I'm familiar with a lot of the um, famous horror scores of you know the last thirty years. Right. Um, so I was actually surprised that you know it's not like a novelty within the film; like it's meant to kind of fit in the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely very tone setting, and and uh, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting and. I'm guessing we'll talk about this more later too, but um, a lot of the punk that they chose is really jaunty and, and sort of like 
party centric. And I think that that for, for those of you who are listening that haven't seen the movie, this isn't like a I'm going to wet my pants and not be able to sleep at night kind of horror movie. This is like a horror comedy uh, more, more than anything. And so the music is party centric in that it kind of wants to let you know that you're supposed to have a good time with the movie as opposed to like being terrified of it. Yeah. And obviously you have a lot of the characters who kind of fit in that punk rock scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not it, like just kind of a random choice. Right. Yeah. No, it's not like a, a, a period piece from the Victorian era and there just happens to be punk rock music playing over it. It's not like some sort of weird Sofia Coppola movie. It's um, yeah, there's uh, it's, it's about a bunch of punk rockers that happen to be at the wrong place at the worst possible time. And that time also happens to be a, a birthday that you and I share. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> um, July 3rd, 1984, uh, which is not the year that we were born, but it is the birth date of both of us. And uh, that's that's something that I get a kick out of every single time I see it. And I even know it's coming, and I still, for whatever reason, uh, July 3rd um, just feels nice. And I don't know if other people that have other birthdays feel nice when they see it in fiction. Um, but I do because I kind of feel like it's a forgotten date, if that makes any sense. Like, I feel like it gets swallowed up by the 4th of July. Like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. That a 3rd of July even exists. So um, I just kind of like that it's there. And also that nobody talks about the 4th of July in the movie before everything goes to hell. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like they forgot that the next day is a holiday. Um, I think in the very beginning, they talk about there being a weekend that they're about to, to be in like, Oh, you know, like let's close up for the weekend, but they don't say for the holiday weekend. Yeah. I remember like when the internet was first a thing, like looking up my birthday to see like what famous people were born on July 3rd. Mm -hmm. Like I definitely had a fascination with like with that date specifically and obviously seeing it in this movie, you know, even as we push 40, I was like, ah, it's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's, that's why I have like sort of an, like a fondness for Tom Cruise, no matter how off the rails he goes or mm -hmm. like how weird things uh, come out about him. Um, I'm just like him and me, we, we have the same birthday. So he's, he's all right. Yeah. I probably haven't looked up famous birthdays on July 3rd since I was like 12, but I remember like, Oh man, Tom Cruise is born on July 3rd too. That's, that's the only one I remember. And yeah, like I, you know, I, I think everybody's guilty of looking up who shares their birthday. Like, how could you not? Because you want to see, I think in it, you want to see if you can tell something about somebody's personality or explain away something about the public persona of a person based on their birthday, based on what you know about yourself. Is that fair? I think it's pretty fair. Okay. I can't explain away Tom Cruise. It's it's fun to try. Yeah, that's that's uh that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I I just think if you're born on July third, you're a handsome devil. And that's the bond that all three of us share. And we're not like six foot six. <laughs> oh yeah. And that <laughs> yeah, short but devastatingly handsome. So you grew up in LA. I did. Um, I grew up a good amount of my childhood in San Diego. You did. It's a very Southern California-centric soundtrack. Yeah, it is, which is interesting because you find out that it is not in L.A. where the story takes place, uh, which I always found fascinating because, yeah, um, even, even before I really realized that the bands uh, were in Southern California or, like, uh, were, were very Southern California-y, um, it felt very LA to me. Um, 
I don't know why. Maybe maybe there's that scene where uh, the punk rocker suicide. Uh, I only ever remember like three names out of out of this whole movie. Uh, but suicide is driving everybody around, and it looks like they're near the L.A. River, and so I just kind of assumed that it was L.A. But yeah, I think it's in like Louisville. Yeah, I think it's in Kentucky, but they shot it in Bakersfield. Oh, okay. So I, I don't know where they were driving then, but um, it just always had a very L.A. River kind of vibe to me. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the bands are, are very Southern California-ish for the most part. Um, uh, like TSOL, I, I know I just kind of like... When I think of them, I think of Southern California right away. Right. They're a Long and, Beach band. And uh, 45 Grave also. Yeah. Like, I don't think Rocky Erickson, I think he's from Texas. Yeah. Uh, Austin, I think. And the Damned are uh, British. Um, and I don't know. Are the Cramps from San Francisco? They're actually New York. They are. Okay. See, I mean, that's that's kind of a weird thing about me, is I had my teenage punk rock phase, and I was also very into some rockabilly stuff, and like very much into the aesthetic, like the death rock kind of punk rock stuff. Um, and everybody I knew that I like appreciated and liked, they all had, if not like a fascination with the cramps, they at least had a cramps phase. And I could not, for the life of me, ever get into them. And I even tried, because knowing that we were going to film the podcast, I was like, let me give the cramps another try. And I just don't really see it. I always get the cramps and the muffs mixed up. (laughs) Not that they sound anything alike. I think it's because once a month, the muffs get the cramps. Sorry, a bad menstrual joke there. So SSQ is also on the soundtrack. They have two songs and I get a kick out of, so I didn't see the movie until um, you, you mentioned wanting to talk about this for the podcast. And I was like, SSQ, who's that? And so Stacy Q is from SSQ. Mm -hmm. And she had a very popular song in 1986 called two of hearts. I love that song. And she is from Fullerton. She is. Okay. I didn't know that. And a few years ago, uh, my band was playing um, this little free music festival in Fullerton called The Day of Music. And I remember my friend was like, oh, I'm going to go see Stacy Q. She's playing. She's going to play Two of Hearts. <laughs> like she's doing a free show on like one of the bigger like uh, promenade areas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. I didn't know Stacy Q was from here. So it was kind of a kick to see that SSQ is on a horror movie soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I had no idea the Stacy Q connection. And I mean, you know, that song always stood out to me, not just because, and uh, spoiler alert, there are boops in this movie, not just because uh, the SSQ song comes on during the boob part, Um, But it just, like, it didn't seem to match the vibe of a lot of the rest of the music. Um, It always felt a little bit out of place. So to find out that it was, like, this 80s one-hit wonder pop princess new wavy kind of uh, thing um, makes it make a little bit more sense. And then I kind of, when you dropped that knowledge on me outside the podcast, I kind of went into who the other people in SSQ were. And I guess like the other main uh, brain behind it uh, has a lot more punk rock connections than just um, being on the return of the Living Dead soundtrack. So it made a little bit more sense. And I guess they put out a new SSQ album in 2020. Yeah. Uh, For all those people clamoring for the SSQ return. I guess that day of music show went really, really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody that was in Fullerton just like was uh, chomping at the bit for Stacy Q to resurrect her uh, project that nobody ever heard of. So the movie. So I, 
you know, like I said before, I had never seen the movie, but yeah. Well, sorry, what, what did you think of the movie? Like, not being a horror movie guy, right? Um, I am dying to hear what you thought about this. The movie felt strangely familiar, and not in a bad way. Uh huh. Like, like you may- knew it from another life. Yeah, like maybe, or maybe I had seen it in like high school at a party or something. Like, okay, there's a lot that felt familiar about it, you know, from, you know, Frank, you know, totally trying to, like, you knew Frank was like going to cause this thing at the beginning of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. With, you know, the the government stuff. Mm hmm. I don't know, like, maybe it's because, like, this is what you expect in zombie movies. Like, maybe it kind of, like, it started a lot of these tropes, maybe. Yeah, I feel like it's responsible for starting a lot of the tropes, but also carrying on some of the tropes or or um, expounding upon the legacy or extrapolating the, the legacy of some of the tropes, um, but also playing with them a little bit, too, right? Yeah, so I wouldn't consider it predictable, but it feels familiar. Right. It it does have a very cozy feeling to it, and and I think that I felt that way even after the first watch, and now, God, I probably first watched it like 25 years ago, maybe longer, and um, even then it felt like a worn-in glove, like a really, really good mitt. And uh, I've I've probably seen it like 20 or 30 times since then. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I I understand why it's a cult classic. I can understand why they made many sequels after this. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I I don't think... I I know for a fact I haven't seen all of them, but I have seen the first three in the series. And even though, you know, they're hamming up quite a bit, like, Frank is just so hilarious to watch at the beginning of the movie oh yeah no he's great like you know it's been easily 20 years since i watched the movie with uh the um uh commentary on it uh but i seem to remember something about that scene where frank and freddie are going through the the warehouse together i i recall a lot of that being ad-libbed I think a lot of it's ad-libbed. Yeah, the camaraderie between those two actors is pretty great. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, they're in uh, the second movie together, too. I think I only knew that because I was like looking up what else the actors have done. I, I like that Frank's most notable credits are in these uh, Living Dead series movies, and then I guess he was in The Pursuit of Happiness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, um, maybe I'm cheating uh, by having a computer open while we're talking, uh, but I see also that he was in Poltergeist and Mulholland Drive, but I can't for the life of me remember him in either one of those. Yeah, I guess it's just the pursuit of happiness in that. He passed away not that long ago, I feel like. And, um, oh yeah, 2018. And um, I, I just recall every single uh, horror obit about him being about uh, being this wonderful character actor best known for the Return of the Living Dead movies. So I think this kind of like ingratiated him in everybody's mind. Yeah, he's kind of like the friend's dad that you work with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like that first scene really develops sort of the feeling between Frank and new hire Freddy. uh, And it's this sort of like, ball busting but like a paternal ball busting right it's yeah like, like i'm oh. like i'm gonna make sure you work eight hours but then like i'll buy you a beer afterwards right yeah and then also you know just like setting up the premise as being like oh it's this uh young punk rock teens uh first day at a medical supply warehouse look at all this weird creepy stuff that we're gonna throw at you um I, I can't help but feel like if you were in a medical supply warehouse, uh, you would get exactly that same kind of hazing on your first day. Like, it do- doesn't even matter who your supervisor is. Like, I think 
the creepiness factor coupled in with the absurdity factor. Like, yeah, isn't it bizarre that it has to be somebody's job to ship cadavers to medical schools? Um, like, you almost have to force a sense of humor on it. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. I think that was kind of the point of Scrubs. Like, it's this very depressing show with, like, these very absurd... Uh, moments of comedy because that's kind of how you keep yourself sane working at a hospital. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a gallows humor that you have to adopt. Right. So take that, you know, exponentially for working in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A a place with split dogs and uh, skeletons. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I mean, as far as horror movies go, it's like one of my favorite openings. And, you know, I've seen too many horror movies, if if such a thing could exist. I've seen too many. And uh, it's still one of my favorite openings just because um, it puts you into this, like, really foreign atmosphere that at the same time feels very casual and comfortable. And it's it's just a, a great premise. And also just like a really bizarre geography to this city that it would be like this medical supply warehouse right next to a crematorium, right next to a cemetery. Credit Dan O'Bannon for working with efficiency as far yeah. as his sets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it just it all has to be real close together so people can run from one to the other. And uh, for for those of you who aren't familiar with the name Dan O'Bannon, he's also the guy that wrote Alien and uh, I think co-wrote John Carpenter's Dark Star, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, he definitely had something to do with Dark Star. Yeah, yeah. And he is, or maybe he was in it. Maybe he was in Dark Star. I don't know. I I don't care enough to to double check, but I do know that this is like his one big directorial effort. Like he did other movies, but this is like basically his only. Yeah, this is this is his baby, right? He got to write and direct this movie. Right. Yeah. And and it really shows like some of that same sort of humor from like a John Carpenter type movie or uh, uh, even Alien, you know, at the times when it's not super dark. And I am confirming he was the writer on Dark Star. Okay. Are yeah, we he far- actually came out with a uh, screenwriting book um, after he passed away. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I will have to read that because I, I have a feeling like uh, he and I would have gotten along very well together. Uh, based solely on this movie, by the way. <laughs> Just like, yeah, I want to make a horror comedy about uh, punk rockers meeting zombies. I mean, you know, I'm I'm doing a metal band versus Undead for my book, so I'm, I'm not too far off. Ah, kindred spirits. Yeah. Well, you could have hung out with him if you went to Chapman for college. Uh, yeah, I could have done that. But then also I would have gone to Chapman for college. It says in 2001 he was the filmmaker in residence. I don't know what that means. What, what does that mean? I'm like, looking are up. you making films about the college? Are you just being paid by the college to have your name associated with it? I think so. Okay. I want to be the something in residence of something. Can I just be the horror guy in residence for podcast for this podcast soundtrack your life? You know, that's an interesting concept. I think every time I do a horror film, I should have you on as kind of a horror expert in residence. Yeah. Well, I I hope I can live up to the, to the mantle. I hope that you're not just paying me to have my name associated with it. I don't have enough money, so you better be good. <laughs> okay. But, um, it, it, thank you for having me on this, by the way, and, and sort of uh, being my very first podcast that I've been on. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs> I have a pretty busy slate ahead of me, but um, 
talking about a movie that I've seen as much as I have um, really, really helps. So on Spotify, I could not find the soundtrack. There's obviously playlists that have bits and pieces right. from it. Um, but it's a pretty popular soundtrack, right? Like it's not, you know, it's not the bodyguard soundtrack or Purple Rain, <laughs> but, you know, like I feel like it has like an important following. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I, I would say within the horror community, Return of the Living Dead is a pretty well-venerated movie and uh, one that's very closely associated with the music that's in it. Um, so it is a little bit interesting that it hasn't been reissued and put on a Spotify and, you know, given given that whole kind of love. And, and I have to imagine a lot of it comes down to licensing problems. Um because one thing that I think that can be said about punk bands or like old school punk bands is that um, they are terse and difficult to deal with uh, occasionally when it comes to the appropriation of their music. And um, what I found really interesting is um, outside of Trash's theme, which is just like kind of a, a riff off of the SSQ song, that's in there um the other song that's not on spotify is from the damned who i would probably call the biggest or second biggest band on the soundtrack wouldn't you yeah i would say the damned and i don't know is tsol or the cramps bigger i would say the cramps are bigger i think i think your proximity to Southern California maybe has warped your sense of TSOL's popularity. Um, I think in the punk rock community, like if, if you're a punk rocker or you associate with punk rockers, you're going to know the name TSOL. And I feel like every once in a while, a hot topic would have a TSOL shirt or something like that. Um, but I, I would say it's firmly in the, lower tier of um punk rock bands that people first trot out to to show their knowledge or credibility you know it's it's not in the sex pistols damned clash uh tier but like one below that's fair i mean i think i'm just used to hearing them playing around town all the time so i was just right. like Oh, they must be popular because they're always on tour. <laughs> well, I, I do think that they're popular. Uh, you know, like, don't don't mistake that. Like, I think they're really popular. And um, they were in Penelope Spheris' um, Decline of Western Civilization. So they have that going for them, too. Um, yeah, actually, they, uh, The Damned were my favorite band in high school. And TSOL was very, very high up there. And I think at this point, I probably listen to more TSOL than I do pretty much any old school punk band. Uh, they, they have this like one unheralded album that I find myself going back to time and again uh, called Beneath the Shadows. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, it's um like uh, I say it's like mid '80s, and it's as they're sort of getting a little bit gothier. Um, I'm looking it up now because anything I say may or may not be true, um, and it looks like it's from 1983, so it's actually earlier than I thought. And um, there's a lot of piano in it. And a lot more singing. Piano, huh? Yeah, like piano and keyboard, and uh, it's it's really good. It's it's um, the singer is not a good singer, but for what he does, it is good. And he does a lot of singing as opposed to just shouting. Ah, oh, got it. Also, the the font that they use for their name on the album cover is the Clockwork Orange font, so they get bonus points for that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so another reason that this soundtrack may have a lot of red tape as far as getting re-released is um, it was originally released on a label called Enigma, which was based in Southern California, which was based in Southern California. But like they've been acquired multiple times by other major labels. 
for a label that I wasn't very familiar with till we started researching for this podcast, mm-hmm. um, they released Motley Crue. Wow. Okay. So they did Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love. Uh, uh-huh. um, they are known for the Christian rock band Striper. Awesome. Um, also, some old uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers albums, and they released uh, Sonic Youth's Daydream Nation. You forgot to preface Red Hot Chili Peppers with the term Christian. Yes, the Christian rock band Red yeah, Hot Chili Peppers. Christian, Christian rock band Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> so, like a bit, like a lot of big names for a label that doesn't have that sort of reputation, like an SST. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In in fact, I, I think when you asked me if I knew which record label put it out, I thought you were baiting me with an SST uh, answer because, like, that's I think the first label that comes to mind when you think of punk, right? Yeah, like SST, Epitaph. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, at least old, old punk, it would be SST, and then probably Epitaph after that. By the way, um, just because I'm doing 62 things at once, I want to correct myself so I don't come off sounding like every other jackhole on a podcast. Um, I was wrong about where TSOL is in terms of Penelope Spheris's filmography. She, uh, they, they were featured in Suburbia and not Decline of Western Civilization. So, uh, listeners, I am sorry. There's two multiple Suburbias, right? Yeah, well, there's, there's like two main Suburbias, and there's like the old, old school punk rock one, and that's a Penelope Spheris film, and that's the one that features Flea, as an actor in it and it's like whoa flea can act um and that one's really good and then there's the sort of god i forget who did it i think um, it was Linklater. yeah it was Linklater. yes you're right because i was going to say i think it's Linklater. he did that one and that's got parker posey in it and that is also good it's a pretty crazy journey of this record label that was basically started by two brothers two brothers interesting you know, I, I kind of never understood, like, the... Uh, maybe you have a better relationship with your siblings than I do. Like, I love my siblings and everything, but I could not imagine going into business or doing something professionally as an adult with either one of them. Um, I think my siblings and I push one another's buttons too much. And there's, like, too much rivalry gone into adulthood for, for anything to succeed. Maybe that's why Enigma is not around anymore, but you know, who knows? So recently uh, we did High Fidelity, and that soundtrack has the 13th floor elevators, which mm-hmm. is a Rocky Erickson band. Is it Rocky or Rocky? Rocky Erickson. I think it's. I think most people just call him Rocky Erickson because that just sounds more rock and roll. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to say it wrong. Um, I like saying Rocky, but I will say Rocky. So I kind of, I mean, I saw High Fidelity when it came out, but mm-hmm. as far as like really getting into like who Rocky Erickson was and um, who the 13th Floor Elevators were, um, that didn't come until, you know, maybe in the last five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. When I mean, are you a fan? When did you get into his music? I find it kind of fascinating that I feel like there's a, uh, like an upswing of interest in him. Yeah, yeah. I think his death really brought about like some extra attention on him. Rest his soul. Uh, yeah, no, I, I honestly wasn't super, super into him or his band uh, or anything for a long time. And then I went and saw Yola Tango did this uh, series of concerts that were kind of like a Q&A. And I forget exactly what they called it, but basically it was like they would play a song and tell a story and then play a song and tell a story. And it wasn't their usual set list. And then they would open up the floor to questions and answer them and then play a song based off of what their answer was or what the question was. 
and they played a 13th floor elevator song and it really piqued my interest. And so I kind of did a, I don't want to call it a deep dive. I did a middling dive into his uh, musical history and uh, came away with like some real gems, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to sit down and put down, put on like a, a Rocky Erickson or a 13th floor elevators album all that often. But um, I definitely stole some choice cuts and put them on playlists and stuff. And his story is yeah, really, really interesting and really fascinating. And I'm always kind of astonished and, Mm, morbidly obsessed with people that have like stints in mental institutions and also are like public musical personalities. You know, your Sid Barrett's and your Daniel Johnston's and your uh, Dr. Octagon's of the world. Yeah, I, I don't think I was too familiar with his work. And then I was at a show and uh, Nick Oliveri came out formerly queens of the stone age mm -hmm. i and saw him at a liquor store in burbank once and he gave me a you know what's up nod ah and that's like one of the highlights of my life because he has a, uh, lived a sad life uh, he has a two-headed dog tattoo they pointed oh, I, that I, out I, I i didn't realize you were following that up with tattoo and um was going to be flabbergasted for a little bit uh sorry so he has a two-headed dog tattoo yeah and that's a uh, reference to uh rocky erickson oh okay awesome the... so i was like oh he's like a big deal to some people that are a big deal yeah yeah i i i love that class of person the the big deal to the big deal right like there should be some kind of a hall of fame for them or something. It would be like Rocky would be first ballot. And I think the Melvins would be first ballot and can and Os Mutantes. Like, yeah. I, I, th I think that's what you're starting the hall with and everybody else can come after that. I think Nile Rogers. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Or yeah, your Nile and your uh Giorgio and you know, like the music like true musical pioneers. Definitely. Did, did you know that Giorgio wrote both Highway to the Danger Zone and Take My Breath Away from Top Gun? I did not know that. No. I, I was actually just blowing somebody's mind with the whole he did the never ending story music. Oh, yeah, you did do that, too. Yeah. Can you imagine being the guy that did Take My Breath Away and the theme song to The NeverEnding Story? Just imagine it. Outside of Frank, who we yes. already talked about, I think I saw a recent uh, picture of the guy who plays Freddy. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, you're like an adult now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I do have IMDB just like popped up. Because for whatever reason, even after two dozen viewings or however many dozen viewings, um, I still don't get most of their names. Like most of the punkers' names, right? Like um, Suicide I know because they refer to Suicide as Suicide. And also it's kind of cool to have your name be Suicide. And Linnea Quigley is trash. And I know that. And I know Freddie and Tina because they're the adorable couple. Um, but all the other ones, like, I, I don't know who's who. And so I was looking at IMDb and I was looking at their, like, portraits. And I could not recognize basically anybody. I was like, Brian Peck? Who is that? What does that guy look like? Who is Scuzz? I don't even know which one Scuzz was. And then, like, I would have to... Um, do some work to figure it out. And then the only other one that I, like, I know for sure, for sure, just off the top of my head is uh, Miguel Nunez, because he's the only one that went on to do stuff where I would have looked up a movie he was in uh, specifically to find out who he was. Yeah, it seems outside of the horror circuit, not a lot of these people had the most... Uh profitable careers yeah i mean linnea quigley is a forever scream queen and um is is worth checking out a lot of her films right
if, if you're sort of a horror newbie or whatever, and not just because she tends to get naked or close to naked in many of her films, um, but just because she's kind of like one of the more interesting personalities that shows up in horror movies. And then, yeah, I, I would say outside of her, um, Miguel A. Nunez Jr., a.k.a. Spider in the movie, um, is the only one that went on to have like a really successful career i guess you would call his career successful i mean he was juana man yeah i mean as like we can scoff from the outside as much as we want but he's had consistent work for a very long time yeah and and not just like bit parts too right like i mean juana man was a leading role so any leading role in a big theatrical run movie no matter how uh worthy of being made fun of it is is like a big deal and and just the fact that somebody of his stature would have a title role in a movie um is pretty remarkable but yeah like anytime he's a character actor he's like a very prominent character actor and i think he's like really good in everything that i've seen him in um the other ones may very well have had like a very good career over these last few decades um but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup, you know? Like, I don't know John Philbin and what John Philbin has been in. Um, I love you, John Philbin, as Chuck, but I, you know, you, you don't have the name cachet of a Miguel Nunez. Yeah, Don Cal Don Calfa? Yes. I mean, he's been in a ton of things outside of this movie. Right. Yeah, like like the the guys that were not like the punk rock kids, I think are more likely to be recognizable and have had like bigger careers, right? Um but right. I, I just I just mean as far as the the kid crew. Right. You know, I don't want to like come off as like, oh, I was like this big ass punk rock kid. Like I wasn't. Um I listened to a lot of punk rock as a kid, uh, as a teenager. Um, I had a hoodie with a lot of patches on it and pins. I carried around an ammo box for uh, my lunchbox because I thought that was cool. Um, but I wasn't like, I don't know, what's something super credible that punk rockers do? I. I don't know. I hung out with a punk rock crowd. I listened to a lot of punk. I had some punk trappings, but I don't know that I'd ever have called myself punk. Um, but what I found funny, like having been at least uh, cheek to cheek with the punk rock crowd, is the mixture of uh, verifiable actual punk rock stuff and activity out of these actors uh, versus like, you know, the Hollywood version of it. Uh, one of the things that I think is like most interesting in movies and, and also it's a big pet peeve of mine is how authentic people seem in their roles. You know, like um, whenever you have like a bunch of gangbangers or something, I'm like, Oh man, like I, I smell the community theater on you. Like you're not from the streets. You were from the suburb and, and it's similar with punks. And, and the way that punks are depicted. And I think a lot of that comes down to uh, the people that are in charge of costuming or maybe directing. They want a punk character, but they're not familiar with the institution of punk. And I think in this movie, it's a pretty good mixture of the two. Like, there's a lot of stuff that these punks do and say and wear uh, that would never happen. But in my mind, it's kind of more of a caricature than it is like uh, just misreading of the scene. Yeah, and I think everything is, you know, played to be a little over the top. Yeah, I mean, this movie is a caricature as far as I'm concerned. Like, everybody is like a bigger boob than they actually would be in real life. Right, That's you know, starting... I mean, Frank sets the tone for the movie. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Or um, when, like, the zombie gas gets out and then you have the, uh, I won't spoil everything, but you do have, like, the uh, butterflies that are pinned inside the case and all of a sudden they're fluttering. 
Like everything is a little bit cartoony. It's a very cartoony movie. Yeah. I mean, you have Spider, you know, trying to fight someone in the backseat while he's driving and someone else has to grab the wheel. And Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, I think he might be my second favorite character in the movie. Like if, if I had a top three, it would probably be Frank, number one, um, Suicide, number two, and then Tina, number three. And suicide, like, I think I like him because of his soliloquy where he's talking about like, oh, you think this is a uniform? Like, you think this is like, just, just for show, this is who I am. This is my identity. And then he's got Linnea quickly, like, um, nakedly dancing all over him, but he kind of doesn't give a shit. And then I just like that. He's got like, big ass chains hanging from everything like he has a, a a chain going from his nose to his ears but it's not just like a little tiny like a charm chain or something it's like full-on i don't know construction site chain like what would you even call those those links like a bike chain <laughs> i don't know yeah yeah he's got like a bike chain going from his nose to his ears Maybe he saw Mad Max and got really excited. <laughs> Maybe. I, I do kind of like how the punk aesthetic uh, wound its way into post-apocalyptic and vice versa. Like, I think that's a real nice meeting of the minds there. Yeah, when they're driving that car, maybe because it's in the Bakersfield desert, but I, I did kind of have a Fury Road sort of feel. It feels super bombed out, doesn't it? But there's just not that dude with the guitar with flames. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no uh oh god. I wish I remembered that character's name. He's got like the best name in the world. But yeah, uh, there's 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 no pole vaulting uh psychopaths uh in, in the movie. Just the, the one that decides to stop driving in order to grab somebody in the backseat. But I feel like it went to been out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up about that scene in particular, this like driving uh, through Bakersfield, which is essentially a bombed out wasteland, is that um, the music in that scene is really loud. Did you notice that? Like, did you notice that while while watching the movie? Like, you can't even really hear the dialogue over it. And I don't know how intentional that it is, but I think it gave a lot of focus to the music itself at that point. And then also, like, I think it was unintentional. I think it was just, like, bad sound mixing. But it kind of gave me the feeling of being crowded into a car with a bunch of other punk rockers you know just kind of without a direction uh kind of like a joyride you know what i mean like it's like whenever you piled into a car in high school the music would always be louder than was tolerable and you wouldn't be able to hear what anybody was saying and you just kind of like would have to nod your head or say what a thousand times and i think it did a really good job of that yeah i think it kind of emulated like like what was playing it on the car radio or tape deck yeah yeah i think so honestly i think that might even be my favorite use of music in the whole movie one of the things also that i, I wanted to mention about like the the music in in the movie is Every like this is the first time that I sat down and watched it with the music in mind, right? Like the music was always an accompaniment. Let me start over. An accompaniment to the the movie, and not not the star of my focus. And um, this time it was because that's the point of this podcast, I think. And um, I didn't realize how much of a mirage the soundtrack is. It's like all these teases. They don't play any one song for all that long. And the use of punk rock in it, um, the use of like the non-synthesizer score, um, really is infrequent. 
but it like it has overall the feel of this like very cohesive very music driven kind of movie what is there maybe five minutes total screen time uh where punk music is being played over the movie well you are limited to 34 total minutes of music if you were to use all of the soundtrack (laughs) yeah that's true too but I mean, you know, like it's a it's a blip of a minute and a half song as opposed to um, anything more substantial. Yeah, that's true. It's it's funny that that you brought up Rocky Erickson because he's like the sore thumb in the soundtrack, isn't he? Like the SSQ is a little out of place, but it's kind of understandable. But then Rocky Erickson had nothing to do with it like he was an outsider the same way that i guess punk was an outsider genre um but he wasn't punk and he didn't come up in the same era and you had talked about like how um the music wasn't played as a novelty throughout the movie um but the rocky erickson song i think was a little bit like it feels like they only picked it because it happens in a scene where a person is about to burn up and they turned up the volume in the uh, song just enough to hear rocky say burn the flame and then they turn the music down so it, yeah. that, that was kind of like a novelty. It's like, oh, what song do we know where the person very clearly says something about burning or being on fire? Let's just use that. Yeah, and it's a six-minute song. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like the longest song on the soundtrack, isn't it? Oh, easily. <laughs> the next longest song is four minutes and 11 seconds. Mm-hmm. So it's almost two minutes longer than the next long, longest song. Right. Yeah, my, my, my son is uh, school-aged, and um, I was listening to the soundtrack, and he knew that I was going on a podcast about the soundtrack. And he knows that it's a scary movie, and he's not allowed to watch scary movies yet. Uh, so he had asked me, like, oh, what's the movie about? And I said it was a zombie movie. And he assumes that any movie that's called The Living Dead refers to all undead. And so he's like, so are there ghosts and skeletons and stuff? And I was like, no, there's there's not any of that. But then we're listening to the soundtrack. And in the Rocky Erickson song, it talks about vampires and ghosts and stuff. And he's like, well, the guy's singing about vampires and ghosts. Like, so they're in the movie too, right? And I had to explain that not everything that anybody sings in a song in a movie comes to life in the movie. Unless it's a musical. Yeah, unless it's a musical. And then even then, is it always like a one-to-one? There are metaphors, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) there are metaphors. So I I just thought it was interesting. And and, uh, it's, it's definitely an outlier in the soundtrack, which is kind of interesting considering his like sort of outlier outsider status within like cult music period yeah i was surprised that it was kind of a ballady sort of song yeah yeah i but also like kind of jaunty right like i kind of feel like every song in this soundtrack even the ballady one is a little on the jaunty side yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just the positive vibes that I associate with the movie. I will say that, um, you know, virtually every movie about like an invasion of something features like a scene about boarding things up, like boarding a place up. And um, they play this like very, very happy jaunty is the word like i i I use the word jaunty um i'm probably breaking the jaunty record for podcasts uh (laughs) they play a tune that's like very upbeat and it kind of lends this feeling of fun to the boarding up scene that i don't think you would have in another horror movie and and i almost feel like that board up the window scene is like a requisite uh, for horror movies where where you're just sort of like fortifying yourself in or barricading 
inside of uh, one location. Um, and it's usually a bit of a slog. It's like, well, we have to put it in there so that you know that they're protected, so they're not terrified every second that they're indoors. Um, but this one was like kind of fun because it was like party music at the same time. Yeah, that's true. Like I said, I don't have like the greatest encyclopedia of horror tropes. So I'm like, that seems fine. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, the barricading your barricading yourself is definitely a trope in, in horror movies. Because I mean, what would you do if you were under attack? Right. Like you would barricade yourself. Oh, I have I have a question for you as the expert, and I am the noob. Yeah, yeah, noob away. So when the movie started, I knew Frank was going to get them into some trouble. <laughs> uh huh. But I was actually kind of surprised that Freddy is not the hero of the movie. Ah, yeah. No, that's that's true. Um, he very easily could have been the hero. Um, and I, I do like that it kind of like takes the concept of the hero and plays with that a little bit, you know, who it is that they wind up using and who winds up surviving towards the end. Who's the final girl kind of a thing. Um, girl in quotations. Uh, but also at the same time, I kind of feel like that intro sets up Frank and Freddie as a comedic duo like that they're that they're the blundering blundering fools together you know like they're an abbott and costello they're a fred and barney they're a like it almost feels like they're in bed together in whatever mayhem they accidentally get themselves into i guess the way that i was expecting things to unfold was they set it off, but they kind of also have to save the day. Right. Yeah. But instead, they're just <laughs> taken out pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> quick and slow, right? Right. But, you know, with Freddy having the girlfriend who's coming to see him, you know, I just assume that he would have to, like, save her and save Frank from turning into a zombie or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely you want to automatically assume that the strapping young lad is the hero. And, and I do kind of like who winds up being the, the hero or the, the couple heroes, I guess you would. And that it's not like the young ones, um, necessarily. It's a little bit more democratic that way, probably closer to the truth too. Honestly. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad I wasn't misreading it. Like, Oh, no, 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 no. Like, I, I would say in a typical movie, that would be it. And, like, the only thing that you would have going against it is just that Freddy doesn't seem very bright and seems very in on whatever mischief and mayhem Frank is trying to get themselves into. And I think one of the things that I find interesting about horror movies is that a lot of it is a morality play. And also, like, intelligence is kind of treated like um, like a, a moral issue as well. So if you do something that's immoral or amoral, you have a very high likelihood of not surviving in a horror movie, right? Um, right. You know, the killer goes after the, the couple that has sex, or the killer goes after the, the one that does drugs. Um, but also stupidity. Like, also, curious stupidity tends to get punished. And so the fact that there is a tank featuring a government mishap um, that, that's, like, in their basement, and Frank is like, hey, do you want to go poke the bear and go see this, like, hideous experiment uh, that was accidentally left here? And then Freddy goes along with it? Like... In most horror movies, I think that is a death sentence. Like, the fact that you're like, yeah, let's go do this dumb thing. Um, like, you're basically, you're putting a big X on your head at that point. Good point, J.M. Brandt. <laughs> 
So, J.M. Brandt, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And just to remind listeners, they can keep an eye out for Swamp Dogs, House of Crows. That'll be coming out on the Black Caravan imprint in late July and in October of 2021. Yeah. Issue 1, October 2021. That's... uh, the Ashcan, you're you're not as likely to be able to get a hold of it. It's very limited release. Um, if you're unable to find it at your comic book store, you can always go to swampdogscomic.com. That is swampdogscomic.com. Or you can go to the publisher, scoutcomics.com, and uh, they will have it there as well. Um, but uh, what would help me out more is if you asked your local comic book store to carry your book. So, J.M., if my listeners want to uh, see what you're doing on socials, can you give a plug for your Twitter or whatever else you're using? Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll do Twitter and Insta because I'm not one of those people that post the same thing to every platform. Uh, Twitter is at M-R-J-M-Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T. So that's Mr. J.M. Brandt with no periods. And then to make things a little confusing and bad for branding, my Instagram is J.M.Brandt. So at J.M.Brandt. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. And if we do another horror one, maybe I can have you back to... Be the the horror in residence. To be the horror expert in residence. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.